0: An empty galaxy with nothing to do in, a remake nobody asked for, and a sequel to an MMO everybody thought was going to die, on this week's Pixel News. Everybody to Pixel News. We are September the 5th, I think, as I'm recording this, and uh, it's been more than a month since the last episode. Um, like a deadbeat dad, I'm here to tell you that everything's okay and I still love you, and I just had some other stuff going on on the side, but that it's okay. Uh, this week, which covers, I guess it's not just week, we're going to be covering from the beginning of August to this weekend, so. Spanning roughly August 2nd to September 2nd, so we have a lot of stuff to talk about. We're going to go through movies, games, and then finally comics. Uh, We're not going to be doing any live events uh, this time around. There's going to be plenty in the weeks to come anyways. And yeah, so we can get started. And uh, coming in on movies, uh, the first release that we're going to talk about is Sausage Party, which came out on August 12th directed by Conrad Vernon and Greg Tierman, and, of course, produced, written, and kind of starring Seth Rogen, Kristen Weig, Jonah Hill, uh, basically your cast of Judd Apatow stuff of all time. Uh, Sausage Party, the first, I think, uh, major release for an R-rated animated 3D movie. Um, It's already... More than recouped its costs and kind of made a ton of money. It costs 19 million. It's made 103.6 at the box office, which basically means that we're going to be getting like four more of these, or that they're going to be financing anything that Seth Rogen does. Uh, the movie's gotten really good reviews, and of course, um, it's kind of brought back the the limelight on the fact that we can have animation movies for adults. So it's been a, a pretty awesome couple weeks for that. On the flip side, though, there's been a lot of hilarity with stories of parents taking their kids to see Sausage Party and being, uh, extremely uh, disappointed and shocked at how movie, uh, movie companies could have these kinds of, uh, these kinds of subjects for animated movies which are for kids, right? So, yeah, that's. I mean, that's kind of the, the the kind of cultural shock of the movie. And this all started in um, mid June when there was a multiplex in Concord, Concordia, uh, Concord, California. Jesus, um, that forgot to switch out the uh, audience reel, and <laughs> so the red band trailer for Sausage Party uh, was airing during G and PG rated movies, shocking kids. Uh, particularly, um, the trailer for Sausage Party uh, apparently was shown uh, at Finding Dory uh, showings, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. Um, the, the theater apologized, but whatever, the damage was done, and everybody who was involved was kind of found it hilarious. However, one of the not so good things about Sausage Party was reports about uh, really shitty working conditions, right? Um, so the uh, the animators uh, at Nitrogen Studios, who were the ones who did most of the effects, uh, kind of came out and wrote an article on Cartoon Brew saying that uh, Tiernan was uh, giving them shitty working conditions, was forcing them to work uh, overtime without pay, and um, it was it was a big attack on the movie and it subsequently ended up with 36 of the 83 animators being completely blacklisted from production and from even being credited for the movie um this is this is bad <laughs> like there's no real way to, to 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 put it up and of course they were blacklisted because tiernan was claiming that uh the reviews uh, not the reviews the, the complaints were were baseless The main problem, though, is that uh, Variety, the Washington Post, and the Hollywood Reporter uh, did not print retractions and actually sustained the complaints. So that's pretty bad. And not only that, but apparently uh, animators on the project were told that they would be blacklisted if they refused to work uh, overtime without pay. So, uh, I mean, it's been a decade now that we've really been dealing with... um, Shady working conditions for anybody who's not part of the main production uh, core of a movie. So if you're not like a director, an art director, an actor, um, even a writer, is, it's a bit iffy. Um, you get shady working conditions. And this specifically applies generally to animators, editors, effects engineers, and to a lesser extent, writers, but also a lot, actually. And then in an adjacent industry, in the video games industry and animation as well um there's been a lot of hubbub because of uh voice actors and the fact that voice actors have really shitty pay and working conditions as well um yeah uh, this is a problem and uh, it's kind of a a bit of a, a black mark on the movie at least for me um i didn't go to see it because if the engineers are blacklisted and they're not being paid then i don't want to give my money to a studio that's exploitative of the making of sausage party um that being said the movie is kind of doing okay without me anyway so what does it matter and that i think that's the only release for the week of august 12th that i think is uh really important to talk about in a month overall if we would be doing weekly um reviews i would be talking to a lot more a lot more about this kind of stuff but whatever Moving on to August 19th for movies it is a huge week uh, for, I'd say, important releases to talk about. Not all of them big. So let's knock these out of the, of the park. Uh, first up is the Ben-Hur remake that nobody wanted to happen. Uh, made by Timur Berkmatov. Ber- Berkman-Betov. Oh, Jesus, I can never say his name properly. beckman Thank you. And produced by Mark Burnett, Sean Daniel, Duncan Henderson, Joni Levin. Uh, starring Jack Huston and Toby Keeble. I love Toby Keeble, but this movie is goddamn terrible. And it also has Morgan Freeman. Woo! So, of course, uh, we all were clamoring for another adaptation of Ben Hurra's Tale of the Christ. Uh, I think it's the, f- the sixth at this point. Uh, the last one is the really, really well-known uh, Charlton Heston I'm pretty sure it's charlton heston ben-hur of the 60s jesus christ am i like messing up all my all my stuff uh 1959 goddamn was pretty close but it is the that was the charlton heston movie um yeah so the ben-hur movie uh tracking really really poorly um it's a complete failure uh, economically. Uh, we're about two weeks in, and it hasn't even remade fifty uh, percent. It's it costs a hundred million on paper. Fifty three point seven million back after two weeks is very very weak. Uh, that means that the movie is not tracking well in terms of uh, recouping losses. And this is a hundred million without taking into account. The marketing budget, uh, pre-production, some of the pre-production, and so on, so on. So the cost is probably likely to be more around 2 to two fifty mil. but the movie is a complete, complete bomb. And uh, I think we've kind of entered that point in time where uh, we're seeing another actor kind of on his way out, and that's Morgan Freeman, which makes me really sad because we've been growing up with him for, I don't know, like 20, for me, 27 years of awesome movies but this seems like just a paycheck he had to cash out um, yeah I don't even want to talk about the movie itself it's just terrible It it's a it's a shitty B uh, like period piece that's not even fun to, to watch unfortunately uh, second on a docket for the week of the 19th is War Dogs by Todd Phillips uh, written by Todd Phillips, uh, Stephen Chin and Jason uh Smidlovich, and starring of course the awesome duo of jonah hill miles teller and anna the Armas, and bradley cooper as a supporting cast and uh it it's the story of uh david pacuz and ephraim devaroli who um kind of wound up in the arms industry in the u.s and it's a bit like, it's, it's one of those dramatized period pieces where, um, much of the movie is actually real, except for a couple of sensationalized scenes, like the one where they're in Iraq. Um, the movie is doing fairly okay. It broke even at this point, 51.7 to 40 mil. But the movie itself is getting kind of critical reception. Um, the same way, the same way that most of Todd Phillips's work gets, um, gets kind of a lot of uh, flack uh, for people who don't know the um, Todd Phillips uh, directed uh, Bittersweet Motel, Road Trip, Old School, Hangover Trilogy, Due Date and Now War Dogs. So it feels very weird because this is supposed to be like a serious movie, a, a serious comedy, like a comedy about uh, real issues, the arms industry, a corruption of uh, arms sales conducted illegally, but with government consent, uh, stuff that we should be having legitimate talks about and that we're not and uh you kind of give it to todd phillips and he manages to present you that exact uh problematic but kind of uh extract all of the self uh self-critical core of the movie so it's it's a it's a movie it's a good movie about bad people that doesn't discuss the fact that it's about bad people or doesn't really address it in any way so yeah uh it's been getting pretty middling scores but um it it seems okay to me um notably though uh jonah hill has received uh good uh, good press about this so yeah i mean that's it's pretty much the the gist of the movie the todd phillipsist of all the todd phillipsist movies uh, the third movie that I want to talk about for the week of the nineteenth is *Imperium*, and this is a, an interesting movie uh, starring uh, Daniel Radcliffe and Tony Collette, um, directed by uh, Daniel Ragusis and written by Daniel Ragusis. Um, I mean, writ large, the the story is about sending an FBI agent undercover inside a white supremacist group in the u.s and kind of the psychological shock that that kind of puts the protagonist through um so uh, to me the premise itself is really interesting and uh it's been getting good acclaim and um it's been tracking well with critics, and especially for Daniel Radcliffe, but pretty much for everybody who's involved in this, uh, in this project. Uh, there's no numbers to talk about because it was actually a direct uh, a VOD. It was a video-on-demand release um, and limited in theaters, so there's no real uh, numbers like that to talk about. But I think that it merits scrutiny just because it's a movie that is not very like anything that we're seeing right now and it takes risks, and it it kind of um, reminds me of American History X in terms of tone. Uh, very gritty look at real evil, which is intolerance and uh, hate of the other. So I recommend Imperium. Uh, I've heard really good things about it, and I'm going to probably pick it up this week. And the last movie that we're going to talk about for the week of the 19th is really close to my heart. I went and I saw it, and it's absolutely fantastic and it's kubo and the into and the two strings and this is the first 3d stop motion film uh, i think since the wallace and gromit movie which was like eight years ago at this point um this is insane so this movie um directed by travis knight and the screenplay was by mark haynes and chris butler Starring uh, Charlize Theron, Art Parkinson, Ralph Fiennes, Ray Fiennes, uh, Rooney Mara, George Chiquet, and Matthew McConaughey. Um, just in terms of cast, uh, completely star-studded aside from Art Parkinson, who's very uh, new. Um, the movie itself, uh, I think I can I can kind of like not talk about the director or the cast, and I think that's crazy. Um the real star in this whole production is the production company at Leica, and that's because Leica has kind of redefined what the pinnacle of stop motion is for the 21st century. Uh, a lot of people kind of considered that stop motion was a relic of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and something that would never kind of track well again for movies because we have 3d now right which is a sophistication of stop motion you don't need the real of the real props in order to uh, make the movie you can just digitize it and add voice and everything's fine what happens though is that Leica doesn't try to use stop motion as a stepping stone towards something else it uses stop motion as an art form for itself and that's amazing The movie features uh, Kubo, who kind of goes on an adventure. He has his uh, violin and sword and uh, gets magical powers and kind of has to go on to uh, a a magical adventure with a kind of a giant beetle, a giant beetle armored uh, samurai and a baboon. I I just don't want to spoil it for you because it's amazing. Uh, there's actually a making of featurette inside the movie at the end, which kind of shows uh, Leica animating one of the bigger set pieces, which is a giant skeleton uh, that you kind of see in the trailers, anyways. So I'm not really spoiling anything for you. But to to kind of make this uh, abundantly clear, stop motion used to be that we would have effects that were maybe like the size of a fist, right? And we would do extremely close ups, extreme close ups of that, and that would be it. Uh, the Leica sets are sometimes 30, 40, 50 feet high. Uh, they're, they're enormous. They're enormous. And the fact that they're enormous uh, lets them add an extreme amount of detail into the set pieces and the characters. And that's absolutely amazing. Um, I, I don't know how to explain my enthusiasm for this movie. Um, critically, it's tracking incredibly well. Um, I mean, acclaim. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it doesn't get more unanimous than that. However, in terms of production, uh, 39.7 million as opposed to 60. The problem, I think, with with the numbers is that it shows that stop motion is kind of, it, it kind of has to get steam again. There hasn't been anything in stop motion for the better part of a decade. This movie is for kids who've never seen stop motion, but at the same time for adults who grew up on stop motion. So it's kind of at that weird intersection between movie-going generations. And yeah, so it it definitely is absolutely spectacular. The soundtrack is spectacular. The visuals, uh, it feels, to me, it kind of feels probably the closest thing that we're going to get to an American-style Miyazaki or uh, Studio Ghibli uh, release that's it's not that but it feels inspired by that it definitely feels inspired by those types of uh of productions so absolutely uh if you have any kind of movie to choose from from august that you like to go see uh kubo and the two strings is my definite pick and i'm mean, going to even an honorable mention uh because i don't really do horror movies but This came out the week after on August 26th, and it's the last release of the movies that we're talking about. And this is Don't Breathe uh, by Fede Alvarez, uh, produced uh, by Sam Raimi. Uh, Fede Alvarez, for for people who don't know, is the guy who uh, directed the remake of Evil Dead a couple years ago, and that got traction to make uh, Ash and the Evil Dead. So a a pretty good good cachet for horror films. Uh, The movie... uh, critical critical success and financial success uh at this point uh cost 10 mil made 63.6 um it's it's not that hard to explain it's literally a home invasion horror movie except that the 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 movie's premise is inverted the characters who are kind of these thieves who are supposed to be the evil ones kind of stumble upon the fact that they've uh They've invaded the house of a serial killer, who's also uh, an ex-military man, and yeah, kind of goes on a hunt. Uh, in terms, of, it's just good scares. the The premise of the movie itself is nothing special, but it's it's good horror. It's good atmosphere. It's good soundtrack. Um, so, honorable mention. If you're into horror movies and haven't seen something particularly interesting in a while, I can definitely recommend this. And yeah. So that's, that wraps it up for movies, more or less. I mean, there's a ton, a ton of smaller releases that we haven't talked about, but these are the, the bigger ones that I think uh, I needed to address. And we're going to take a quick break. And after that, we're going to move on to the video game releases for August of 2016. back, and uh, now we're going to be moving on to video games of various types. See what happened in August. Uh, again, there's always a ton of releases, but these are kind of the hand-picked, curated, uh, pixel-faded uh, stamp, stamped seal of approval or disapproval in one of the cases that we're going to be talking about for video games. So the first one came out on August 2nd, and it's Batman: The Telltale Series which is, as you might know, a Telltale game. (laughs) Telltale Games um, published but distributed by Warner Brothers game about Batman. And boy, do I love this game. I've never particularly been that much a fan of the Telltale series, uh, although I think Wolf Among Us is a standout because it's a really good, faithful adaptation. Um, Batman has been fantastic for this. Telltale always strikes kind of the 50-50 landmark between going to see a movie and playing a video game right you're a participant in the video game you kind of make choices and stuff but everything is kind of telegraphed you're there for for the ride and that's that's kind of risky because um we already have a very successful batman series right the rocksteady arkham games are incredibly good and they're all about being batman about being the the knight and kind of doing Batmany things and flips and, uh, having the cape and the Batmobile and everything like that. Um, the Batman Telltale game is completely not about that. <laughs> you are Batman in a couple scenes and there are some extremely cool fight scenes. Uh, the, the bank heist is fantastic in the beginning. It's the first scene. Um, I'm not going to reveal anything about the rest of the scene. I absolutely hands down recommend you pick this up. This is probably the best Batman title to come out of the last year and it's like seven dollars on Steam or um, PS4, where I bought it, or Xbox. Uh, it's, It's goddamn fantastic. And what really stands out for me is that it is not a Batman game. It's a Bruce Wayne game. And it delves into the psychological trauma of Bruce Wayne and balancing politics as Bruce Wayne and being in the public eye and all the crap that the movies never really deal with. Like, he's not just a rich millionaire. He has to actively fabricate a persona that will confuse his enemies at the same time operating uh getting access to information and setting up uh his war on crime and kind of also uh talking about his relationship to other characters who then become villains uh it's no no secret the first game uh features pre pre pre-villain era harvey dent two-face and um Cobblepot um, the Penguin. So the game is absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Um, The engine that that it runs on is a fairly optimized version of the Telltale engine, which is starting to show a little bit of age. But with the aesthetic choices that they've made, the game is super beautiful. And it added a new feature that I think is really fantastic that a lot of players who are kind of playing it together at home we're using and that feature is the crowd play feature which means that if you're streaming or yeah if, if you stream you can kind of link a, a specific code that the audience can kind of use on a web enabled device like ios or android or tablet and you can vote on the choices so essentially it becomes a community run game the community decides the narrative and that's super interesting in terms of narrative storytelling and what that means for streamers um it, it's it's a new kind of move towards the democratic like democratic uh element taking over uh, the video game space uh, in play so i can't there there's no amount of excess uh praise i can give to this game it, it's fantastic and one of the better buys uh of the last year for me hands down i recommend it without any kind of uh of reserve we're going to be skipping the next release because I want to talk about that for a long time, so we're going to leave it for the end. But moving on to August twenty third, uh Ex: Mankind Divided, and this is uh, this is a big release um, out of Montreal. Represent, uh, IDOS uh, developed by IDOS and published by Square Enix. Um, fantastic! It's a fantastic game. I mean, in terms of storyline, this is the problem. I think it's it's still a good game, but. It's basically a Deus Ex: Human Revolution Part Two, right? There's not that much new that uh, compared to what Deus Ex: Human Revolution, uh, yeah, Human Revolution provided us. Uh, there's a few new texts and a few new uh, elements, but it's by and large the same game. So if you love the first game, then you can, you'll probably love this game. There's a couple things that are really kind of creepy in terms of the settings um like there's a lot of apartheid imagery and kind of um a lot of like dystopian future stuff but uh it's just kind of everything is kind of stereotypical and it it's kind of hard to take it seriously like it's so um archetyped on what dystopian media is sort of like that you know it, it's kind of hard to see what to do with it i don't know uh the main problem i have with it at this point is that it it feels like an auxiliary to the first game and that kind of sucks um in terms of chronology it takes place two years after human revolution which is at the same time as the fall but about still like 23 years before the original do sex game so we're not at that point yet um unfortunately that would be awesome uh full of like Really weird uh, Illuminati, uh, like, a secret society shit going on. Anyways, um, what I think is really spectacular about the game, though, aside from my criticisms, is that it retains uh, its characteristic structure of being able to kind of play your way. Human Revolution had this thing where you could not kill anybody and still finish the game, aside from, I think, one or two bosses. Uh, Mankind Divided has that full on. You can decide to kill everyone, never kill a person. Uh, stealth, not stealth, be, uh, charismatic. So that's, that's kind of cool. The problem is that there's not really like the, the feel of the augmentations uh, taking over society is not omnipresent. So uh, take it, take it as you will. Um, there is one kind of problem that needs to be addressed with it. And that's the pay to win aspect of it, which is not that big, but still controversial, uh, the game was a full release, which means in Canada it did go for seventy nine ninety nine plus tax, which is a hefty sum to pay for a game nowadays. Especially when when you wait for a Steam sale, you're like covering stuff for twenty bucks. So you'd expect to have a full game. Well, there was an option. There is an option for a one time microtransaction where you can get Praxis, which is the equivalent of skill points, which are generally long to get in the game, especially as you move forward. So you can buy a pack of three packses uh, for three praxes. I think for, I think it's I think it's five praxes for three dollars or something like that, which is a, a tiny, tiny, tiny sum. And some of you are going to tell me that I'm overreacting. There's games with MTXs and stuff. The problem is, it's a single player game. It's not a multiplayer. It's not an MMO. It's nothing else. And it kind of sucks that you're being nickel and dimed to get content again. I mean, they used to do this, uh, EB Amazon, Best Buy used to do this with pre-order content. Now it's become a thing of actually paying microtransactions to the company on top of the pre-order, on top of the cost of the game. So, it's kind of a bummer. It's the, it's the only thing that's kind of shitty about the game, and aside from that, uh, I recommend it heartily. I have heard that there's ways to kind of lock yourself into bad playthroughs in terms of skill decisions, and that's not a super cool element. But aside from that, it seems to be doing fairly well, and uh, it's a safe bet if you're already a fan of the series. So, two more releases to talk about. Next up is the big one for August, the colossal return of a titanic MMO that destroyed my childhood, my my adolescence, and the ton of other lives marriages and uh got people fired evicted it's the world of warcraft expansion legion the sixth expansion for the phenomenon that is world of warcraft uh released on august 30th uh still still running through blizzard still making a ton of money uh we don't have the uh we don't have the sub-numbers yet like we did for uh, for Warlords of Draenor, but the game itself is already tracking to be a colossally um, a colossally large uh, return for players. Um, it takes elements from Warlords of Draenor, like the stronghold option, and kind of made it personal. Um, there's like dailies. There's still the... They've the really, really, really positive... Uh, leveling experience from From World of the Draenor with uh, zone area quests and kind of larger narratives and in-game uh, cutscenes, which I thought was one of the better additions for the last expansion. It's kind of hard to tell how it's going to evolve over the next few months because that's kind of what happened with the last expansion as well. Really strong start, but not that good two weeks in. Uh, for people who are wondering in terms of plot, what happens... Uh, following the events of world worlds of Draenor, uh, heroes return to the main timeline because of course we're in two different timelines. Uh, Gul'dan, the version from the alternate timeline has escaped and contacted the burning Legion and kind of initiated an invasion of Azeroth and it's up to the heroes to stop it. Of course, in all this chaos, uh, the warden vault from Warcraft three is breached and, uh, the imprisoned, uh, Illidan inside of a crystal is taken by the evil dudes and the rest of the demon hunters are kind of freed so that they have to go hunt uh, the demons and find Illidan again. So yay, demon hunter class, uh, the demon hunter class, uh, two specs for people who are looking to play it, uh, one melee, uh, damage spec and one tank spec, uh, both pretty awesome from what I've played so far. Um, their opening sequence is one of the best intros for classes since, uh, I would say the Death Knights uh, just incredibly good at kind of getting you hooked on the story and kind of feeling very different. It takes place in outer space. There's spaceships and shit. Who knows what the fuck is happening at this point? And so that's generally the story of what's happening in Legion for now. Uh, the, the, the continental area that everything takes place on is the Broken Isles, which was an area that only... The Night Elves, uh, Night Elf campaign featured in the World of Warcraft, uh, not the World of Warcraft, the Warcraft 3 Frozen Throne expansion. It was the first campaign. So it's kind of this tropical, uh, but at the same time, uh, forlorn and very moody place. That's actually uh, Suramar, the old Night Elf capital that got destroyed in the events thousands of years prior to War- Warcraft. Okay, enough Warcraft. Lore, I'm talking real quick. So what is the big switch about this game at this point? I mean, we've had five expansions, so what do we get? We get more dungeons, we get more raids, we get a new class. Big whoop, right? Um, if you're a junkie for lore, this is probably the biggest payoff in terms of story that Warcraft has ever had. It pays off I think most novelizations, everything that's a flashback, and kind of integrates at this point that we know of at least three or four um colossal uh, bad guys and or uh, heroes right it also brings back illidan almost likely because he's on every <laughs> game cartridge and a uh, game box he's in the cinematics he's kind of hinted to be there so he's either going to be a boss again or he's going to be a hero please don't make him a boss again please blizzard don't do that to us but in terms of mechanics, what's really cool is artifact weapons. And that's kind of a new thing. Warcraft has had item rarity for as long as it's existed, right? From gray, white, blue, uh, gray, white, green, blue, y- uh, purple, and then orange items. Orange being l- uh, legendary weapons. So weapons that you had to spend uh, an obscene amount of time farming to get uh, some even months upon months of doing 40 man raids in order to kind of get a couple pieces to get that hammer that would be super cool for you or whatever else you wanted Uh, the artifact weapons kind of channel that feel the the feel of having this legendary weapon but do it differently almost as soon as you enter the expansion you will get a quest for your class that will make you pick a uh, a weapon for your class the weapons of course are kind of synonymous with these specializations so for example the marksmanship hunter gets a bow called Thostora, but the bow itself is not that fantastic and i think unusable if you're playing the survival spec which has a spear or the beast mastery spec which has a gun you also get the weapons so early that you basically stop using the other weapons that the game drops you anything like green or blue items Aside from the fact if you want to use those weapons on a secondary specialization for your class. So what's super cool is that the weapons are legendary, but they are yours from the moment that you enter the expansion. Almost. TM. Uh, the weapons get additional skins and stuff like that as you're progressing. And questing, um, Questing, completing live events, raiding, uh, gets you different supplies that you can consume for artifact power and artifact power is kind of like XP. You use it to upgrade your weapon along a talent path, like the old passive tree that they took out like three years ago. So now what you have is you have the character's talents, which are kind of the tiered, you just pick one of three in your spec and that's it. And following that you get um, the class tree for your weapon, which can also, it also unlocks I think one active ability automatically and a bunch of passes or other active abilities, depending on what class and what spec you're using. So that's kind of the the big the big add on uh, in terms of mechanics, and it's fantastic not just because it kind of nuances the way that you can play each spec a little bit more again, but for the fact that each weapon is incredibly well uh, anchored within the lore of Warcraft. So, for example, uh Retribution Paladins that are kind of the damage dealers get the Ashbringer, a famous sword that's been used by Tyrion Forgering and a couple of the characters before him. And it was part of a huge quest uh, within Vanilla and Burning Crusade and I think up to Wrath of Lich King. Um, Ice, uh, Frost uh, Death Knights get Icebringer and Frost Reaper, uh, which are... Two swords that are forged from the old Frostmourne that Arthas used in Wrath of the Lich. Oh, well, from Warcraft three to Wrath of the Lich King. All these are all these. I don't want to reveal all of them, but they're all like these awesome Titanic items that have super huge lore behind them, and the people who wield them, if you have to fight them, also are champions and strong. So the game. Warlords of Draenor kind of gave your character the name Commander and made it feel as though you were a commander of heroes at this point, that you were important because you'd gone through five expansions. Uh, Legion does that to an even greater extent, and I think much more subtly. It doesn't need to give you a fort and castle and say you're a king. It's going to inscribe you and give you the lore of the game items that were these huge mythical things for you when you were a kid and you were playing the original Warcraft. You're like, whoa. I wish I could have like Frostmourne like Arthas. Well, now you can have the Twin Swords. Well, not the Frostmourne, not Frostmourne exactly, but the swords that come out of it. So, I mean, that's pretty much what I want to say about World of Warcraft. So, so far, uh, the best Warcraft release since I think World, uh, Wrath of the Lich King or Burning Crusade. That's saying something. We've had pretty good releases on par. But this is uh, far and above and it revitalizes the game in ways that made me come back after a a long hiatus. So thumbs up for uh, Legion. And um, we can talk about two more things before uh, we switch over to the next rubric. So the the next game we're going to going to be looking at is not a full game it's an expansion and uh, this is the atlas of worlds expansion for path of exile and this came out on friday september 2nd which is why i'm recording this on monday because i think i've been putting about 35 to 40 hours into that game at this point um sleep has eluded me that game has taken over my life uh for people who don't know me or know people here at pixel faded uh i as well as jonathan and a couple of our other uh, kind of behind-the-scenes contributors who kind of provide data for all of our stuff. Uh, we're all big Path of Exile players, and uh, I'm going to take a second to talk to you about that, and I'm probably going to have some more info later on. But uh, Path of Exile is a ARPG, which means a an isometric uh, action RPG, like a two-thirds perspective where you play a character and you go hit monsters. Kill monsters, get loot. Kill bigger monsters. Move on to the content. Uh, I'm simplifying, of course. There's a an extremely rich uh, universe of lore. Um, there's also uh, acts. There's side side qu- side quests or side progression that gets extremely difficult. Uh, the two notable ones are the uh, they're called the It was called Sacrifice of the Vol when it came out, and it was all about kind of this uh, Aztec. Blood Goddess, uh, Blood Queen that you had to kind of uh, work your way up to through corrupted areas to to go fight. And the other one is the Labyrinth, which was the previous expansion called Ascendancy. And that's uh, a series of progressively more difficult trials in each difficulty to unlock subclasses, which are incredibly uh, powerful for your character. And Atlas of Worlds is a rework of the endgame. So much like uh, Diablo 2, which this game is the clear uh, inheritor of legacy and uh, kind of the homage to, not as much as Diablo 3. Sorry, what I mean to say is that Diablo 3 is a complete departure from the style of Diablo 2. Path of Exile is very much a progression of that style of game making. And this expansion uh, is kind of a rework of the endgame. So previously, what the endgame was, and kind of stays like that, but differently, is that you would complete the three difficulties, normal, cruel, and merciless, and you would then access a map device where you would put in uh, various maps and you could uh, enchant them, uh, craft them to your to suit whatever um, level of difficulty you wanted to bring them up to, up to a point. And you could roll it, uh, you would roll it in regards to what your character was weak or strong to and kind of favor yourself but also um get additional content maps were progressively uh more difficult and you had to clear um there were tiers of maps so you would clear a tier with the hopes that a map of in a higher tier would drop but it could also drop a lot lower it was it was all about building up a huge pool of map items and kind of getting to the end Atlas of Worlds uh, kind of keeps that element, but also adds a map system, like an, the actual atlas itself, which um, requires you to progress in certain order between maps, but also gives you bonuses for clearing certain objectives. Um, all with the perspective of getting, of completing the entire the entire atlas, getting to four guardians, defeating them, and then accessing the final area, which is a kind of thulu looking uh, motherfucker at the end of the game. So. Yeah, that kind of covers what Atlas of Worlds is in general. Um, What it represents for the game is a complete rebalancing of the endgame in terms of difficulty. It's been uh, like a brick wall, and uh, we've been playing for years at this point, so it's been uh, been a challenge adapting to and kind of figuring out uh, new builds. Uh, There's been a significant shakeup in the meta as well in terms of what's on the way out and what's on the way in um, for people who... Are aware of the game in terms of jargon for example cast on critical uh, strike was kind of gutted uh, it's still usable but it's definitely not what it was anymore um, there were also specific unique items that were that were uh, rebalanced uh, nerfed so it's an opportunity for a lot of um, change and also a lot of the the new items and stuff that can drop is really localized in the very 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 late uh, end game content, so we've kind of moved away from just the RNG basis and a lot towards needing to push deep into the endgame content, and that content being very difficult. Um, I I am speaking as a uh, filthy casual, a casual uh, of the game. I'm not a streamer, so I think for streamers uh, it's pretty much par for the course, like every season. But for regular players, this game presents a substantial challenge and is now, I think, for my taste, uh, difficult enough uh the game has been a resounding success uh we don't have the numbers yet but i think the original uh, the, not the original the previous recorded uh player high was something like 31,000 uh cons- like um concurrent and uh, on friday we had 71 i think 71,000 in queue just for the washington dc server so uh, Take that with a grain of salt because there's multiple U.S. servers, uh, EU, now Russia as well, and uh, because it's been merged over from Garena. And of course, the Oceanic server, because uh, Path of Exile is very much a product of New Zealand, of Auckland, of the Auckland-based studio grinding gear games. And uh, for people who are kind of wondering why they should pick up this game, what makes it cool, um, so like I said, it is a diablo 2 successor for people who are into that kind of action game but it is very much um unique in its tone it's uh it's kind of the, the premise is that your character is exiled from the main continent of oriath lands up lands up on kind of a ruined prison style uh horror, horror nature uh, setting called Rayclast, where the world, the civilization has kind of crumbled long since. Uh, there's survivors living in enclaves, but most of society is no longer existent. And the island itself uh, transitions from a kind of seaside beach and mountain uh, and caves area towards a lush jungle that's ruled by uh, a fallen, like the, the the. It's ruled by bandit tribes and uh, is home to. Uh, submerged kind of Aztec-style ruins of the Vol, and then moving on to the ruined city of the Eternals, which is kind of like the Roman Empire, and finally Act Four, which moves further into the horror setting of the center of Class and what lies at the core. So it, it's very much imprinted with that island feel that you could only find... Uh, f- written by artists from new zealand it has a lot of homages to maori culture it has a lot of kind of clash of values and identities between the native island dwelling maori people who are portrayed uh as noble and kind of um Very much concerned with the spiritual life, which is real in the game, whereas the Eternals are very much a stand in for the Roman Empire, addicted to hedonism, pleasure, uh, gladiatorial fights and riches, and uh, kind of taking over everything in the the clash that kind of destroyed the continent between uh, all these different civilizations and tribes. So in terms of lore, it's incredibly rich, it has very much a horror feel, and the game itself is fantastic. Um, I've never talked about it that much on the podcast before, but Path of Exile is hands down my favorite game, uh, that I currently play. It's not my favorite game of all time because that kind of is a reserved uh, honor for uh, Ogre Battle and uh, Ogre Battle 64 and Tactics Ogre. But this game, uh, has been my go-to for the past three, three and a half to four years, uh, since, uh, closed beta. And I think the most resounding praise I can give for the game is the massive amount of communication and response from the team. Uh, Grinding Gear Games has grown, so that's a little bit slower than it used to be, but it's still uh, an industry leader in terms of kind of discussing what it does with its gamer base. But even more than that, what I think is a big asset is that the game is completely free to play. There are microtransactions, but most of them uh, revolve around cosmetic uh, skin transfers or specific armor sets or alternate skill effects for your characters. Uh, the only ones that can be considered even remotely infringing on the integrity of the game are stash upgrades, which are not necessary at all if you are if you don't want them. And there is an API to upgrade one stash tab for, I think, $1.50 into a premium stash tab, which makes uh, selling... On a third-party website, a lot easier. Um, kind of, honestly, kind of necessary if you want to trade that way. But if you're in a guild with other players, you can kind of forego um, that. Trading is the only kind of dark side about Path of Exile right now. But I mean, if you think that the entire game will cost you maybe a dollar fifty to make completely functional to the max, um, it, it's it's more more than worth it. So. That kind of wraps up most of what I want to talk about games, but there is the big planet galaxy-sized elephant in the room that I think we have to kind of address. Uh, We wrote a piece about it about a week into the release, but uh, now's the time to take to task No Man's Sky. Uh, I think there isn't a game that's been talked about more this past month. Uh, No Man's Sky released... Developed and published by Hello Games, uh, directed, designed by Sean Murray, the best PR person of 2016, hands down. Uh, no Man's Sky has been around the circuit, I think, since E3 2014, uh, it's been talked about. The The first teaser was actually in December of 2013, but... Um, I think I kind of it's the this, this uh, discussion is so daunting that I'm not exactly sure where to start, but if we talk about the hype around the game, I think is a good place to start. Um, no Man's Sky was hyped up to be the next phase of gaming. A uh, virtually infinite procedurally generated but unified universe in which all players were building, discovering planets, galaxies. Animals um, that were all majestic and lush and incredible, and there's these crazy trailers from that time, and um, it, it, it's incredible. We were all hooked on that, and it was all about the kind of super positive uh, space exploration that you would talk about in books by like Isaac Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke or Robert Heinlein, and kind of even the artwork channeling that, like, 80s uh, sci-fi fiction. Just this crazy, crazy um, phenomenon that was supposed to happen for, for video games. It wasn't even supposed to be a video game. It was going to be something completely new that was going to propel, technologically, games, like, a generation forward. And what we got was basically a really cool... Um, rng simulator like a a procedurally generated universe simulator that is completely goddamn empty and we have spore tacked into the game now that might seem fairly simplistic and yeah that is a simplistic way of putting it because that's pretty much the only thing that the game can give me at this point um the game yeah the the sigh of uh of disappointment the game shipped missing a slew of features that is so long it would take me about another 30 minutes of just reading you the list but suffice it to say that there were a lot of missing uh compositions of animals of fauna uh missing gigantic fauna we were missing sandworms we were missing giant birds in the sky um we were missing dense lush planets we were missing um coincidental uh, multiplayer, like I, I'm passing through a star system and somebody else is at the same point. We can see each other. That was supposed to happen. It did not. And the worst part isn't even that this happened. It's that Sean Murray was facetious and lied about it and said, you know, oh no, it's uh, oh, it's wonderful. Like we're we're still working out the kinks, you know. Uh, it's wonderful that we have so many players uh playing right now. Oh, wow, so amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, I feel as a player, I feel defrauded by the experience. And I mean, I had a lot of fun with the game. Um, I basically ran around collecting languages for the first like 60 hours of my playthrough. And to be fair, yeah, I got it. I got a good 60 hours out of the playthrough. That doesn't change the fact that what the game promised and what the game shipped are essentially um, different. It's We got a different product than what was marketed. And that's false advertising, no matter how, lo- how much you look at it. Uh, coupled with the fact that about a month into launch... Um, not like last week... Uh, people started discovering that their discoveries were being erased in the game. So the main thing that we were marketed was that you could make your mark that would be permanent on this universe. If I could name a planet for Harambe... It would be for Harambe forever, and it would be encrusted in that meme for all time, and everybody would hate that that was there, but it would be there regardless. Well, that's not happening. From what I understand, planets and galaxies do remain named, but everything that's an animal species or a plant species has started being erased, and there's been no comment about it, but my assumption is that uh, multiple players passing through different areas kind of pings the server every time to re-upload the names of every goddamn thing that you found. And that's a big strain on servers, especially since the game is about three gigs. So it's clear that the, the back end of the servers is fairly light for what the game is. So it's kind of like Pokemon Go, right? We're, we're seeing a game that had incredible premise um, buckle under the weight of its own expectation and its own promises. And that is shitty to watch and it's shitty for video games and it's shitty for sean murray who's a horrible person who lied to a ton of gamers i'm sorry this is a rant now but that's pretty much what it feels like and that mars my experience of what is already a fairly cool and competent game the color scheme is beautiful the soundtrack is absolutely spectacular by 60 days of static um and paul weir like there's a ton of good of good elements about this game, and they're all overshadowed by the lies and the technical problems and the delays and the features that will never ever be delivered because they've already cashed in on our money. The worst part is when confronted about these pe- about these features that were missing, Sean Murray said, "Of course, we're super committed. Hello Games is super committed to fixing the technical issues with the release." and planning to expand on those features of game of the game in time. But he then went on to say that basically, well, yeah, we'd love to do these things, but we also can't work for free, you know. So not only are we being nickel and dimed for the features that we were already promised, but we're potentially being charged a second installment for the same product. It's like if you go to the, the dealership and you get a car and the car does not have a radiator or AC or uh, it has no battery in it, right? If it's a hybrid or something and you kind of go back to your dealership and you say, well, you promised me all these things. And I say, yeah, of course, like that's the product. But uh, actually I'm going to need to charge you more than what we agreed upon to actually give you those features while we're working on the kinks. That type of rhetoric would not fly in any industry except for the video games industry, and to an extent, I guess the movie industry as well, but that's a different case, right? You're not—it's not a feature or something that you want to that you're getting to uh, to pay, right? So the bottom line is uh, a really, really good game, a uh, really good month for games, um, marred by the ruined, uh, botched launch uh, of No Man's Sky and that's going to be haunting for uh, for years and hello games has kind of tanked its good name at least for the foreseeable future anyways that wraps it up for video games and we're going to take a really really quick break and then we're gonna we're gonna do the last portion comics and the wrap-up for the podcast see you right after we're back fans i'm sorry i'm still like reeling from the psychological shock of no man's sky but we're going to be talking about comics um i don't really want to talk about them that much in terms of big releases but there are two things i want to talk about and they're actually series that have wrapped up so series that started before we were doing this podcast but i think are uh, incredibly well worth the discussion So one of them is a a collection, a complete collection that got um, released on August 24th. And it's the series called The Omega Men, The End Is Here. And it's written by Tom King. uh, And the art is by Iguara, uh, Toby Cypress, and Barnaby Bagenda. Um, For people who have no idea what the hell this is, The Omega Men are kind of a weird... Uh, apocalyptic uh, vigilante group in space in the DC universe, and they worship uh, one of the bad guys as kind of a transhuman symbol, and they take issue with uh, one of the premier Green Lanterns turned White Lantern, uh, Kyle Rayner, in the universe. And it's literally, the best way I could put it is it's a comic about religious fanaticism set in space but seen from the perspective of the fanatics, not from the people fighting them. Actually, seen from the from the perspective of somebody who fights them and then becomes kind of aware of their plight. Um, the series is probably one of the most important comic book series of 2015. 2015, 2016. It's 12 issues, uh, and it's about 25 bucks. so it's, it's nothing uh, too expensive. It's a soft cover you can get on Amazon or whatever uh, I'd recommend. Uh, local stores, Captain Quebec and Montreal, whatever. Um, but we generally deal with comic books, superhero comics, especially as good good versus bad, right? Superman is generally good and uh, Darkseid or Lex Luthor generally bad. And this kind of completely uh, flips that premise on its head. We have to deal with the fact that it's not about um, good and evil, especially in the Green, in the Green Lantern universe where – The manifestations of the characters are literally like life and death, uh, good and evil, white and black, you know. So I think it's one of the most important parts of discussing uh, radicalization and fanaticism. And not in a way that is pejorative, like um, Frank Miller's Holy Terror, which has Batman going to beat the shit out of um, terrorists in the Middle East um we've it. it's clear at this point that we've evolved into uh, a, a narrative that is much more sensible and critical of all of these ideas and yeah i that's pretty much all i want to say about the omega man but just go check it it's fantastic and it's probably the most important book that dc has put out this year so there's that my second uh love and this one's from Image, as always, uh, is Tokyo Ghost by Rick Remender with art by Sean Murphy and the colors by Matt Hollingsworth. Um, This started getting published in September 2015, and it only went on for 10 10 issues. Uh, The 10 issues were collected into two volumes. Volume 1, The Atomic Garden, 1-5, to was released in 2016 and is available. The second... Uh, collected version uh, 6 to 10 which I do not have the title with title for yet is going to be released in October so Tokyo Ghost uh, at this point is one of my top two comics Uh, I was saying I think earlier on the summer that that was going to be Deadly Class also by Remender at this point I'm (laughs) fairly split between Tokyo Ghost and Low which are both Remender titles um, it's fantastic. The series is set in 2089, uh, far future, I guess, in uh, LA, when people have basically completely become addicted to technology and entertainment, both in their bodies, but also as kind of a complete numbing escape from reality. So it's this kind of super bleak mix between like the megacities of Judge Dredd and the infantilization that we got to see in WALL-E. And basically, everybody's turned into crime. Crime gangs, or for money, like, people will YouTube uh, violent crimes. Uh, Cops uh, basically have become primatized, and they're called uh, constables or uh, peacekeepers. And the two main ones are Lead Dent and Debbie Decay. And the names are really on point because they're not uh, supposed to be serious. They're kind of takes on... What society has done to them they actually have different names that you are going to find out through the comic but the names and the machines that they have in their bodies are kind of a plague that's been infected on them and basically what happens is that they're giving uh, a job to go and infiltrate the garden nation of tokyo which is the last absolutely tech-free blackout uh, country on earth and when they get there, they're confronted with the society that's kind of gone back to ideals of Bushido and service of the other and kind of a hyper naturalism that's uh, it's completely like nothing else. And it really is um, at the heart of it, uh, a love story between the two protagonists, uh, Led and Debbie, um, inside this kind of corrupt and sick society of the future and it's it's incredible uh two reviews that i think i can that are really super close super quick uh, one was by sean edgar of the paste calling it a quote uh, gonzo william gibson ish nightmare showing murphy's uh transport of craft at its height and Jeff Lake of IGN, who described it as, quote, a pointed look at the evolution of our desensitized now, now, now generation and, uh, completely, absolutely bananas when it comes to action. Um, the amount of violence early on in the comic, uh, is absolutely jarring. Like it, it it's so omnipresent. The pages are so crowded visually in terms of narrative. It feels like you're going crazy. And then it switches to kind of a much more normal society and you feel like you're left in a vacuum by contrast. Uh, Tokyo ghost uh, is without a doubt a must read um, as is low, but there's no relevant release to low right now. So I'm not going to talk about that until a subsequent episode. Um, read it. I think that everything that recommenders put out for the past three or four years is uh, the best work that's been produced in comics in terms of comics as um, philosophy as kind of serious narratives about mental illness, about technologification, techno optimism about uh, dystopianism. It's fantastic. That's not to say that Marvel or DC aren't putting out good comics because there's Marvel now is super proficient with that. And DC also has been dealing with a lot of super cool stuff, but for me, I think uh, Remender towers over pretty much everyone at this point and is a must-read. Um, so yeah, that's going to be it for this instant, this episode of Pixel News. So covering from August second to September the fifth, and we're going to be returning to our regular regular schedule now. We were a lot of tech problems and stuff as usual when you're producing a show uh, with one or two people. These things happen. Um, I love you all like your deadbeat dad who kind of left and still loves you, but, uh, is somewhere in a bowling a bowling alley in Reno. Um, yeah. So you can check out all of our stuff on the pixelfaded.com website or through our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and we host the audio on SoundCloud or iTunes. Um, so you can listen to it on your drive, on your run, wherever you want. Um, Thank you for listening, and uh, if you feel so inclined, leave a review or just uh, click a a like or a couple stars. It always helps to get a little bit of visibility. So see you next week, or this week, at the end of the week.